you know, the Trump sued the Times. <laughs> Trump sued the Times because of an allegation that there was a quid pro quo with Russia in an op-ed. And I guess we could get really deep into this, but I think, and I'm not a First Amendment scholar, that <laughs> the hardest part that he's going to have to face is that on the top of the article in like 25 point font it says opinion (laughs) (laughs) like that seems to be the big one for me like i don't even know that we need to cover much more but it's on that's fair but on the other hand i kind of think trump deserves to prevail on this one just by virtue of how bad that one sentence he keeps quoting is there's like a which one was that? Oh God, it's so convoluted. I got to look here. Oh, yeah. The, they had an overarching deal. The quid of help for the quo of a new pro-Russian foreign policy. Like, it sucks. The, the Trumpites knew about the quid and held out the prospect of the quo. Like, this style, this glib little New York Times style of writing is brutal. And I think that that should be actionable in and of itself. <laughs> the other stuff, you got a point, but... Now, uh, for me, Charles, I'm also not a First Amendment scholar, but I think they may have a hurdle here where in this defamation complaint they say, on information and belief, this article was published online and in hard copy. I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead and say that if you're filing a defamation lawsuit, you probably should have a good idea whether or not it was published and where it was published. Yeah, they also say that it, they also say on or about the day on which it was published. So it's a very nebulous, yeah, like real, real free flowing uh, article. I mean, out though there. you got you do have to respect Charles Harder for not wanting to be inaccurate, right? That excess of caution is the Charles Harder guarantee. Yeah, leave a little wiggle room. You never know. Here we go. I'm Charles Starr, and welcome to Hostile Witness, a podcast about law at the end of the world. An unpredictably scheduled look at the tragedy and stupidity of our fake laws. This is Hostile Witness. Bear with us. I'll get to the stupidity later, but we're going to start with the tragedy of the Supreme Court's open invitation for the Border Patrol to kill without consequence. Joining me for Episode 1 are Patrick Cosmos. Hello. And Eric Michael. Hello. Yeah, um, it's a case that, you know, I, I think, it, first of all, it's been in, been litigated for years now, and some people might be familiar with it just hearing about it in the news, but this is a case in which a Border Patrol agent shot and killed a 15-year-old Mexican teenager. The Border Patrol agent was on U.S. soil. The Mexican teenager was on Mexican soil when the bullet struck him, and of course, The agent here says that all of this happened as part of an illegal border crossing attempt, but the the family of the the deceased teenager who was bringing the lawsuit, they say that it was just a bunch of kids. They were in a culvert on the the U.S.-Mexican border where, you know, there's a fence on one side that's Mexico, there's a fence on the other side that's America, and the parents are saying that these kids were just playing a game, running back and forth. You know, you touch the American fence, and then you run back into the culvert, and you touch the Mexican fence, and, um, yeah, shot and killed uh, from U.S. soil. 
And so, yeah, the question here is, can the family of the dead Mexican teenager sue the Border Patrol agent personally uh, for damages? Right. And so there, the background on the damages claim, right, ends up being an old Supreme Court case based on a Supreme Court case called Bivens versus six unknown federal narcotics agents. Great, great case right. name. It's like it's a great case name, and everyone only knows it by the boring part, <laughs> right? Because, like in Bivens, he gets arrested and roughed up, and at the time that he's suing, he doesn't even know the names of the agents who did it, so he's got to sue them anonymously. So it's. Bivens versus six unknown federal narcotics agents. But in that case, they established the law that because you have Fourth Amendment right against illegal searches and seizures and there is no remedy otherwise, you are allowed to sue the agents. They create a private right of action that allows you to sue federal agents for violation of your Fourth Amendment rights. And this seems... Like a pretty on-point case, right? Bivens is is interesting, too, because the reason we have Bivens is there's another federal statute, which, again, like people who follow the law generally might be aware of it. It's called Section 1983. And that's a federal statute that says if a state actor or, you know, local, like a police officer, for example, if they violate your constitutional rights, you can sue them personally for damages you know it says that in so many words but that statute federal court right right in federal court right that statute very conspicuously says nothing about federal agents and so and so when Bivens came around the supreme court noticed that and said that there's there's no remedy in law for a violation uh, no damages remedy if a federal agent someone acting as an agent of the federal government violates your constitutional rights and that's that's how we came to Bivens Right. So now there's almost equity because Bivens is much more restrictive than 1983, but at least it's there. At first blush, everyone thinks it's like on point because it's a federal agent who fires a bullet (laughs) at someone like the facts are in dispute, whether he was part of an illegal border crossing and dangerous and all that fact stuff the government would contest. But it's undisputed that he shot and killed him. So before you even get, I guess, to the question of qualified immunity is whether there's grounds for a suit at all. And here they're like, no, that's not close enough. Because for the last 40 years... The Supreme Court has been just trying to kill anything like this, yeah. right? All pro- that's and that's kind of weird because so Bivens is settled in 1971, and then it is expanded twice in 79 and 80, and then after that there's like right. a really conspicuous clampdown. Right, right. They added one for sex discrimination, and I'm trying to think of what I, I think don't it was uh, prisoner abuse, wasn't it? Like oh, an, an Eighth okay. Amendment federal prison abuse. Yeah, Bivens is really interesting because. It's been on the books for 50 years, but for the last 30 years, the Supreme Court, they refuse to kill it. But every time someone brings a Bivens claim and it reaches the court, they say, uh, it's not Bivens. Uh, right. they've, they've basically 
the law of Bivens today is that if you want to bring a Bivens lawsuit, you essentially have to bring the exact same factual scenario of the pre right. three previous Bivens lawsuits that have successfully been brought. They've basically said there is no more Bivens yeah, other right. than what explicitly has been Bivens before. And they say there's never been anything close to a cross-border shooting in a Bivens case. Therefore, there is no Bivens remedy. Yeah, that test is extremely conspicuous the way that it's spe spelled out because, you know, they check to see if the claim arises in a new context or involves a new category of defendants. And then when they clarify the language, it says it's new if it's different in a meaningful way from previous Bivens cases, which could be basically if they had different names. You might literally be <laughs> right. Bivens again. Right. You were assaulted right. by five, nar five narcotics agents, not six. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that's what it is. They, like here, they, I mean, they really, really bend over backwards to find it different because it's a cross-border situation. And they're like, well, now we're implicating all kinds of foreign policy questions. Yeah. Because, because I mean, here's the upshot of it. The penalty that the agent got from Border Patrol is nothing. They investigated, and I think the investigation is asking the officer what he thought. Mm. And the officer's like, well, he was trying to cross the border and I mean, what would actually have like the broader scenario as the plaintiffs put it, because it's a motion to dismiss, you're supposed to take their facts, right? You're not supposed to care really what the agent thinks or what the government says in response because it's a motion to dismiss. So, you know, Hornbook law, you take the plaintiff's claims is true what they say is that the kids were playing this touch the fence game you know you run across the border you touch the fence you come back and the border patrol agent comes by on his bicycle which is just until he shoots a guy just sounds funny so he comes by in his bicycle and he catches one of them and arrests him and the other kid bolts for the Mexican side, and in his telling, the officer just very slowly and carefully lines him up and fires twice, shooting him in the face and killing him. So the Border Patrol agent says, no, actually, they were trying to cross the border, which seems dubious, you know, just a couple of teenagers alone in the desert, and they threw rocks at me, yeah. which, you know, may or may not be true, but... <laughs> At this point, he's clearly not a danger, right? He's just running away, far enough away that he happens to shoot him on the Mexican side. Like, it ends up being not even in dispute that if he were a quicker draw and shot him on the American side, no dispute. This is a Bivens claim. He shot him, you know, in the course of his duties, on American soil, his citizenship wouldn't matter to the Bivens claim because on the American side of the culvert, right? And there's no, like, there's no line in the culvert. There's no 50-yard line here, right? On the American side of the culvert, he would have been subject to American jurisdiction, and that's enough to get you I don't know. I don't even think the way I read this Alito opinion, which so in this case, Alito has the majority opinion and Ginsburg has a dissent. It's a 5-4 decision. I don't even, if all this took place on American soil, I don't even think their 
the Supreme Court is extending Bivens, they would probably find that this is distinctive enough from, you know, previous cases. They, they, would, they would say that this is, you know, law enforcement related. This wasn't like a search and seizure like there was in, in the, the original Bivens case. This was, you know, a Border Patrol agent in the heat of the moment. I'm really skeptical there's any way, regardless of how the facts played out, that this court would allow Bivens to go forth. I mean, just aside from all the factual circumstances here, I, I think what you see from this court, you know, if Bivens fundamentally, it's a question of when there's no law on the books, should the court step in? And I think, you know, majority of the current Supreme Court, if given the opportunity to say, should we create a remedy that doesn't exist in law for, you know, someone to sue a Border Patrol agent? I, I do not see that as likely. I am never going to be the one to defend Alita. <laughs> I think on a kind of, if you asked me if I thought Alito would do the right thing or the wrong thing, <laughs> the answer is I think Alito will do the wrong thing. But if you asked me if he could justify it with anything other than total bullshit, I would also say it would have to be total bullshit, right? If this kid dies on the American side, if the bullet hits him on the American side, the rest of it is there still ends up being a diplomatic issue because the Mexican and American interests may diverge. But I think the court is much more hard-pressed to... I mean, yeah. I think the United States conceded on the papers that if he had died in the United States... Yeah, Mesa says so in oral been. argument that it would be a valid yeah. Bivens action if the bullet had hit him when he was on the United States side. Really? Right. They, that, they, they, that was conceded? Wow. It's on page that's seven of the Ginsburg dissent. Yeah, that's where yeah, Charles yeah. got so, so, I mean, so I think that would have made it even harder for Alito. Yeah. Not that he wouldn't have found a way, yeah. but that concession would have made it a lot harder. But, I mean, that's it. So they justify it on so first he gets no discipline and then all of the other sort of potential areas where the foreign tort claims act and like there are a bunch of things all of them don't apply <laughs> and so he's literally left with nothing and the alito response is i guess sometimes nothing isn't enough they don't care yeah. like i mean he has a sentence the plaintiffs claim that if you decide the case this way, it literally becomes open season for the Border Patrol to just shoot people across the border. Yeah, it just depends on where the bodies land. Yeah. Yeah. They can just fire into Mexico with impunity, and the only remedy is hoping that the United States government cares enough. And... Alito's response because the question is not whether national security requires such conduct of course it does not but whether the judiciary should alter the framework established by the political branches and so it just doesn't matter enough that this guy shot a kid in the back in cold blood because he really hates private rights of action yeah I think that's that's the bottom line you know. um, there, there, it's also interesting, you know, another one of the justifications of why not to extend Bivens into this context is you know, there's there's a series of cases where 
the Supreme Court has extended or, or refused to extend Bivens in the military context. You know, the Supreme Court said we're not, yeah. we're not going to allow soldiers to bring actions against other soldiers or against their you know commanding officers chain of command etc because the military has its own internal set of discipline to handle that kind of stuff we're just the federal judiciary shouldn't touch it and and here in this case that's they analogize it to that so basically alito saying that the border patrol they're, they're really troops when right. you think about it, it's the, right. they're no different Even though than they troops. don't have the UCMJ, yeah. they do have an, like an, an employment hearing. Right, yeah. So that's just a, 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 another one of the, you know, just reasons in here um, that you, you read this and you just, you just roll your eyes because it's just like, there's no way that this had any possible life with this particular court. Uh, yeah. and, and, and the result is probably what I think anyone would have predicted. And I think one of the more risable parts of it is the fact that it mattered where the body landed. Like, Alito talks about the claim arising in a foreign country. And Ginsburg is like, it didn't arise in a foreign country. A U.S. agent on U.S. soil fired his U.S. gun and let loose a U.S. bullet. (laughs) And, like, it can't possibly matter how fast the kid was running because if he was just briskly walking away you know he has time to shoot him on the american side of the border and that can't be like where the injury arose i mean it's where the injury took place but the actions giving rise to it all took place in the united states yeah, well, uh, actually, Charles, a battery is the unlawful touching of a body. And in this case, the unlawful touching occurred on Mexican soil when the bullet struck the individual. So there to four, uh, this claim does arise on Mexican soil. Yeah. You know, yeah. you mentioned the, the dissent, and this is a really entertaining dissent. Maybe entertaining is the wrong word because the subject matter is so heavy. But it's um, a really notable dissent because normally there's like a specific thing that someone takes issue with or whatever. This Ginsburg dissent reads like one of those message board arguments you see where somebody like breaks down a post and quotes every single paragraph one by one and like, <laughs> like rebuts fire literally Morgan. every single thing. Yeah, it's really remarkable. Oh, I mean, so much of it is enraging because the, the case that really in the last two years reigned in the private rights of action was in Abbasi a couple of years ago. And the Abbasi case was Muslims who were kind of rounded up in the post 9 I think it was they were Muslims rounded up in the post 9-11 free-for-all. Yeah, it wasn't like they were being deported and it wasn't like they were being tried. They were just being held. They were just being held, right, and questioned and interrogated and investigated and then eventually just let go when the government decided that they were not, in fact— connected to terrorism and so they sued because they said the whole thing was an unlawful seizure and a farce and private right and they're like no 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 that's not that seizure is not a bivens claim uh sorry well they're not named bivens Uh, as we've established and the (laughs) the, well no the reason they distinguished it was because in bivens they were rogue officers so it is you're suing the officer because he's acting outside of the norm of the policy whereas in Abbasi the entire 
thing was a matter of official government policy, right? So you can't sue the officers for just following orders when what they're doing is a dragnet for anyone who is Muslim. And so therefore, it's not a Bivens claim. And so, like, that's the basis. And they're like, no, no, no. A policy of abuse is not covered by Bivens. It's just... Uh, and so that's the, that's the basis, where they're like, no, now extending Bivens is really disfavored. And it gets even more maddening at the concurrence. <laughs> because the concurrence is Thomas and Gorsuch... And I think Thomas wrote a similar concurrence on Abbasi where he's like, you know, I really think it's time we get rid of Bivens too. Now that we are not extending private rights of action, I think it's time for us to really admit that all private rights of action that are not specifically authorized in statute by Congress, because they know how to do it, they passed 1983, yeah. all of them all court-created private rights of action should be eliminated. Therefore, there should be no remedy until Congress cares enough to stop federal agents from beating up citizens. He calls the court's prior approach to expanding Bivens freewheeling, which I thought was a really cute turn of phrase. Yeah, they didn't even really care. It was just, just wild thought it was fun to create a private right of action for a police officer beating up a civilian in the course of an arrest. Who would have even thought that that was a problem? So that's where it's 5-4 that we can extend Bivens on any ground. The ones they made up here were sort of diplomacy and national security. But more specifically, two of the guys on the court don't want even Bivens. Which is a real contrast to Ginsburg, because when she was talking about like the whole issue of where the where the victim fell in the culvert, she's like the point of <laughs> it can't matter where the kid fell down, because the point of Bivens is to discipline the officer. So it's the officer's actions that matter. Where he fired the gun, not where the bullet hit the kid, and it's just very frustrating. Just to, to put another finer point on that, you know, it, it's frustrating because, Charles, I think you mentioned quality to, qualified immunity earlier, but, you know, in, in Bivens' actions, qualified immunity is a defense, and it's a substantial barrier if you're bringing a Bivens claim because qualified immunity basically says that as long as the, the person who violated your, that you're alleging violated your constitutional rights, as, as long as they subjectively, you know, reasonably believe that what they were doing wasn't a constitutional violation, they're immune from suit. And so this right. idea that, you know, well, if we extend Bivens too far, um, we're, we're going to be penalizing officers like border patrol agents who are just you know out there trying to do their jobs like there's there's already safeguards so to speak right. in Bivens law for people who are in fact just honestly trying to do their jobs um right. but but the, right. it, it doesn't protect the malicious or the ones who are intentionally abusing constitutional rights right i mean the qi issue comes into play when you're deciding whether 
the touch the fence game is the real story. Right. Or the border crossing and rock assault is the real story. And whether that even matters when you shoot a non-threat in the back as they as they run away. But there's an entire phase of the trial that covers this if you at least admit that the actions of this officer fall under the same standard as Bivens. And, I mean, one of the things to just... To make it even more maddening, Ginsburg throws this in. She's like, it's not it's not like this guy who shot the kid was a lone actor. He wasn't the first person to do this. There have been other suits. There have been hundreds Over 800 of incidents. complaints. Yeah, 800 complaints with a 97% finding that they're unfounded. And only one criminal prosecution. So either they never violate anyone's rights, unlike any other police force, or the only remedy by their employer is a, no remedy at all, right? They, they will never face any consequences for what they do. Ugh. Any final thoughts on uh, Hernandez v. Mesa? Yeah, I did really like, once they get past uh, the fact that this is different, and that's why they shouldn't expand it, they talk about the other reasons why it gives them concern. And the first one is, uh, you know, the potential effect on foreign relations. And right. I really like the Ginsburg line where she's, where, or it's the Mexican government in, um, when they're talking about it, they said, refusal to consider, it, to consider the parents' claim on the merits is what has the potential to negatively affect the international relations. So, like, their own test is ridiculous. Right. Well, I thought that conversation was a little skew because I think it's obviously true that the courts throwing out the claim is going to make Mexico upset. Right. But the court's position is more general than that, which is our deciding it at all is an intervention. Yeah, fair enough. And the United States is choosing to let Mexico be mad, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, it is a foreign policy choice. I mean, I think it's a bullshit way of distinguishing Bivens, but at least here what Alito is saying is the United States in the executive branch is making a specific fo- policy choice to say fuck you to Mexico, <laughs> and we have to respect that choice <laughs> as a different branch. Which is probably not ideal, but at least is more coherent than pretending that he didn't realize that he was going to piss off Mexico by throwing out the claim. Sorry to interject before segment two, but a warning as you proceed ahead. We recorded this segment using Zencaster, and the second half of this episode has some minor drops and slips that sound like shit. Uh, Also, there may be some slight pops, so pretend you're listening on a cheap turntable or something. Anyway, I know about it, don't yell at me, and I don't recommend Zencaster. Hostile Witness, definitely not brought to you by Zencaster. 
So let's get to the the last of our chunks of cases. It's so funny. All of this, so much of this came out just after we agreed to record this together, right? Originally, we were just going to cover Tulsi Gabbard's suit against uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, because it's always fun to do really dumb celebrity defamation suits. And then before we got to sit down, Roy Moore... Uh, I was just like, I got a dumber <laughs> one. There was, you can't possibly be dumb enough. I'm going to hire Larry Clayman to do an even yeah, dumber Yeah, against one. way more people too, which really adds, really just compounds the entertainment. Yeah, I'm going to sue newspaper now. <laughs> so, because it's going to be even dumber. And then, <laughs> like in the course of reading that, he hires Larry Clayman. Larry Clayman has a suit pending. From like the week before, because he sued Wonkette for defamation. It's mm-hmm. defamation. And so season. it's just like, <laughs> well, it's yeah, defamation. it's just like this daisy chain of stupid opinions. But I guess we should just start where we wanted to start originally. Patrick, you want to set up the Tulsi Gabbard complaint? Yeah, this is great. So, uh, so Hillary Clinton goes on what? It's a podcast? Yeah, I podcast. think so. Yeah. Campaign HQ with David Plouffe. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So she goes on this podcast and she says, she doesn't say Tulsi's name, but she suggests. I'm not making any predictions, but I think they've got their eye on somebody who's currently in the Democratic primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite of the Russians. They have a bunch of, you know, sites and bots and other uh, ways of supporting her so far. Uh, and I, I'm, that, that's assuming Jill Stein will give it up, which she might not, because she's also a Russian uh, asset. That got repeated everywhere. And everyone's like, oh, she's talking about Tulsi. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then she doubled down on it the next day, or one of her people did. Clinton's official spokesperson, somebody named Nick Merrill. Asked whether the defamatory statements were about Tulsi, and the spokesman responded, if the nesting doll fits. <laughs> And then there's an entire numbered paragraph after that that says Clinton's reference to the nesting doll is a reference to the universally known Russian nesting dolls. Yeah, which of course it was. And so that's it. Those are the defamatory statements, which, you know, not. I think it's not a great claim because there, there's some opinion. But the way she phrases the claim, like throughout, right, she <laughs> yeah. keeps, she says that crossing Clinton could mean the end of her political career, but she did it anyway. Clinton, a cutthroat politician by any account, right? Just really mean. Clinton was the clear front runner in 2008 and 2016, but she ultimately lost in surprise upsets, right? Like throughout the complaint, <laughs> yeah. she's just like incredibly mean to Hillary Clinton back. Yeah, I have, you know? I have remembered them explicitly using the phrase dripping with sp- with spite. I'm not uh-huh. positive that's it, in I here. I think it was. But this ill will is further demonstrated by vitriolic comments by Clinton. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, just... This, it's, this, this pleading, it reads... I mean, it's, it's pretty much a campaign ad. It's talking about how... Are you saying that because it opens with like five paragraphs about how she's a troop? <laughs> exactly. About how Tulsi is, yes. you know, how she's got a, a history of service, you know, in the legislature and multiple deployments abroad and how she always puts country first. And that's what makes these statements, these implications that she's a Russian asset, 
allegedly that she's a Russian asset. Uh, you know, so damning. There's there's stuff in here about how when she was a child, she and her siblings would you know go on service days where they would pick up litter off of the beach. I mean, it's it's just it's dripping with that kind of stuff. And um, <laughs> the, the thing that I like about this is you know, it's kind of subtle, but you know, in in this complaint, there's kind of like a, a subtle hint of voters are kind of dumb. <laughs> because when you, when you when you read what she's alleging, Hillary is this cutthroat politician who will do absolutely anything, and she will say anything to maintain her stranglehold as you know one of the front runners of the party. <laughs> you know she'll do anything, but you know people believe her when she says stuff like "I'm a Russian asset," or, or, or yeah. you know she she talks yeah. about how it's like it's it's insane. Uh, that I could be, you know, characterized as a Russian asset. You know, I sit on these foreign service committees. I have access to classified information. No one in their right minds would believe this. But when Hillary says it, people believe it. <laughs> it's just like these, these contradictions. Right. She has a paragraph where she says that they were not statements by someone who was well known to speak in hyperbole. Right. She's cutthroat, but she is considered honest. Right. Though I think she like spends a lot of time in this. Yeah, I was going to say, her it's complaint. really inherently funny how she talks about how she's cutthroat and she's powerful and she has access and everything. And then there's just like a whole paragraph with a backhanded thing about what a loser she is. The other thing that I really like is that she's asking for uh, damages in excess of $50 million, which these defendants... Yeah, uh, right, right. Yeah. You're burying... Yes. You're kind of burying and the running. Yeah, and running. 50 it's million got that and running. It's very dramatic. The, I mean, the, the, these statements were in October of this year, and so she's saying that the, these statements cost her campaign funds. I mean, the last quarter, what, Bernie led everyone with, I think, $30 million. So she's basically saying that Hillary Clinton going on David Plouffe's podcast and defaming me, if it, but for her doing that, I would be raising, you know, the money of Bernie and Joe Biden combined. <laughs> right. I mean, David Plouffe has to have dozens of listeners. <laughs> she spent so much time talking about the vindictiveness too, right? She has a special hatred and animosity for Tulsi, who never endorsed Clinton or campaigned for her in 2016. That Clinton's agents email Tulsi to tell her that the team no longer trusts her judgment and would never forget this slight. She's known to keep longtime grudges as far as maintaining for me against me databases. Yeah, I love the database thing. That and, was so good. And scoring degrees of treachery. Like there's an Excel chart of how much. Yeah, I want to see that spreadsheet. I was very <laughs> excited reading this paragraph. <laughs> But like I was saying, I think she's undermined her complaint a little, right? Like the big the big problem with her complaint is that it has to be a statement of fact, not hyperbole or opinion. But then she has in her complaints, she phrases it, right? She's a Russian asset. The average and ordinary person would say that she's a tool of and perhaps an agent of the geopolitical rival Russia. Agent of would be defamatory. Tool of doesn't really seem defamatory when she understood them to mean that Tulsi was aligned with Russia and not the United States. I don't know that aligned with is defamatory. You can just say that her objectives, even if ostensibly pro-America, are the same as Russia's objectives, you know, interfering with, you know, the normal democratic process or being crypto Trump supporter or whatever. Like that's sort of where 
she ends up in rougher terrain on the merits of the the complaint. Yeah, yeah it's, well, it's rough to see Tulsi Gabbard make a rare misstep where she resorts to hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. So this is you really hate to see it. I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, it was a really fun complaint to read. And I think if you get it in front of the right judge, you can pick out a way of defining it as a statement of fact. But I think the defense is going to be almost entirely, if not entirely, that Russian asset was a hyperbolic statement of opinion and not the opinion that she was on the payroll. Like that asset was meant more colloquially than that. And I think most judges will not make the sort of really far leap. That said, I think it would be a lot of fun. I mean, here's the thing. In both of these cases, right, in the, in the Gabbard case and the Roy Moore case, I don't really like the plaintiff or the defendant very much, right? Roy Moore is suing the Washington Examiner. Tulsi Gabbard is suing- It's the let them fight meme. Yeah, this is absolutely a let them fight situation with all of these people. Yeah. I want the plaintiffs, I think, I think, I want the plaintiffs ultimately to lose because that's better for law. But I think it's also good to make these defendants squirm- and so, like having having them survive the motion to dismiss uh, would also be fun. You want to, uh, Eric? You want to set up the uh, <laughs> the Roy Moore complaint? Well, I mean, I don't really know how much needs to be said. Uh, <laughs> Roy Moore is suing the Washington Examiner for a series of alleged defamatory articles where they continually bring up the the allegations, you know, that uh, derailed his Senate campaign. In Alabama, I, I think if, if you just want to get the gist of this opinion, there's my favorite paragraph I, I highlighted of the complaint. It's paragraph 19, which, you know, just this is all you need to know. There is no evidence the plaintiffs, quote, sexually preyed on underage girls, nor is there any evidence that he was banned from the mall for doing so. There is also zero evidence that plaintiff's election would result in the death of babies. So that's, that's kind of the flavor of, of what we're talking about here. I mean, and if you want to know why Roy Moore is bad, it's fun to just <laughs> yes. read the titles of the Washington yeah. Examiner articles. Now, the Washington Examiner, for people not familiar with it, I think is essentially kind of a never Trump newspaper. <laughs> so conservative, but not really Trumpy conservative most of the time. Uh, so the titles in February 28th of 2019, GOP nightmare as Alabama's Roy Moore signals he might run again. Another one titled, If Alabamans Vote for Roy Moore, They Deserve jo Doug Jones. <laughs> what ends up happening is in order to support his case, he's got to keep citing. And, and reciting so, all the things that he didn't do. It's totally the, um, yeah. the my shirt that says I'm not involved in human trafficking. <laughs> it's inviting a lot of questions that my shirt answers. Like that's definitely the yes. vibe happening throughout this entire complaint. It just keeps compounding. Right. And so Roy Moore, famous for being man banned from a mall because he sexually played <laughs> on underage girls. She referred to him as an accused sexual assailant and pedophile, a comic book villain, and a skunk. <laughs> 
If you back Roy Moore in a primary, every pro-life bill that fails in the Senate means you have, and this is the killed babies, every pro-life bill that fails in the Senate means you have extra blood of babies on your hands. Now, as a quick sidebar, I don't know about his politics with respect to abortion, but she did just describe Pepe Le Pew. (laughs) That's correct. A sexual assailant, a comic book villain, a skunk. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I found the third article. Sorry. The title was, Let's Examine All the Reasons Roy Moore is a Terrible Human Being. (laughs) In which he is described as a despicable person, an indefensible person, homophobic, probably racist, and a terrible human being. And says that the allegations of sexual misconduct reported in the Washington Post were overwhelmingly (laughs) likely to be true. (laughs) He defends himself, by the way, by saying he passed a polygraph examination. And this is classic Larry Clayman law work. There's a site to him passing a polygraph examination. And it cites to an article from The Hill in which Moore (laughs) says he took a polygraph examination. There's another great back-to-back paragraphs in here where he's quoting from one of the defamatory articles, uh, a quote that says, a number of women came forward during his campaign to claim that Moore sexually assaulted them, including two accusers who were underage at the time. And then the next paragraph, only two women ever accused the plaintiff of sexual assault. Raises the question, is two a number? (laughs) He splits hairs somewhere around there where he also argues the notion that it was multiple women who came forward. And they're all within like a page of each other. He says that they said multiple women and multiple (laughs) women can't be right. It was just two. And I guess two is the baseline. So it's not a multiple of two. Everyone has two sexual (laughs) assault allegations against them, making him completely normal. In one of the articles, right, it's, you know, a different author, not Tina Lowe, but Dunleavy said that Moore attempted to rape Nelson, was that accuser, in her car. And he's like, there's no allegation that it was rape. And I mean, if you read the allegation, it says that he like locked her in the car and groped her and wouldn't let her leave until she sort of begged him to leave. And I mean, try to rape her is kind of a substantially true description of that allegation. This complaint is as notable for the citations that it omits as it is for the citations that it includes. The other great citation is that he says that one of the Washington Examiner reporters has been accused by other journalists of being an absolute liar and characterized her work as a fraud. And that citation goes to the esteemed (laughs) loomered.com. Yeah, I noticed something about this when I looked this back up. Could you take a look at the entire URL and see if you notice anything weird about the words they use in there? Uh, yeah, thought patrolled. Yeah, yeah, T H O T thought patrolled. All right. Like I think, I think that may be a column, or I, I don't know where I should have looked up where that comes from. But like thought patrol seems to be like something within the Loomer verse. <laughs> Yeah, there's absolutely no way I'm going to that URL. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not prepared yes. for my, my YouTube recommendations or my targeted Facebook ads after clicking on that. Yeah. The, <laughs> and I mean, I guess we have to get into the standards of defamation here. 
which is that you have to demonstrate actual malice, which is why they talk, because he's a public figure. And it's for the first time in one of these cases that an obvious public figure doesn't try to argue that he's not a public figure. Like he doesn't even bother with that. Because I think in some of his earlier Mm -hmm. cases, he's like, I'm not a public figure. I'm merely a two-time member of the Alabama Supreme Court and Senate candidates but not a public figure. That's when he was being represented by Trenton Garman and he was suing all of the other places. As far as I know, like, I don't know what's still pending. I can't imagine his original suits against the Washington post and al.com are still live. I think he may have sued the women for defamation. I don't know if that's still alive. The only thing I do know is that his attorney, Trenton Garman, from all of those cases, uh, got popped for a DUI and a hit and run. But I don't know what has happened with that either. All I know is there are a lot of rabbit holes. But in any event, suing for the reporting of other people's reporting is going to be a really high bar to clear in a defamation suit. Like it's just so legally insufficient. I don't even know what to say. Oh, except for one. There's one that I I think we can't possibly miss here. He fights the fact that he was a pedophile, like because the the quotes are that he was a pedophile and a credibly accused sexually pedophilic predator. And the women were 17, I think, in one case, which was one of the assaults, but the other one was 14. That was the one where he was at the courthouse when I think it was Leah Korfman went to a courthouse with her mom because her mom had to sign like divorce papers or something. And Roy Moore's like, I'll watch your daughter. She was 14 at the time. And so he says there was no accusation that Roy was ever accused of having a, quote, preoccupation with a prepubescent child or children, generally 13 years of age or younger, that occurs over a period of at least six months as defined by the DSM-5, which is the first, as far as I'm concerned, known <laughs> legal assertion of it's not pedophilia, it's a febophilia. He literally is like, no, no, like every like freaky fedora libertarian. No, no, she's a teen, not a child. Stop making me super creepy. I'm merely kind of creepy. I love, I love how defensive he gets about getting banned from the mall. Like that has been like a through line for a, for a couple years now that just cracks me up every time I was not banned from that mall. I want something like this to go to trial just so people can be deposed to say they knew he was banned from the mall. I want like all of the people from Ottumwa County to like come out of the woodwork and be like, oh no, definitely. Definitely. Everyone knew that you could not have Roy Moore anywhere near the Orange Julius. And so, but it's like, that's exactly what you get from a Larry Clayman opinion. It's citing to Loomer.com, a very strenuous defense of the actual meaning of pedophilia. That's it. These people hate my client and no facts exist. And all of it is going to be 
fair report privilege because everything in this is just in other newspapers and is just sort of so ubiquitous in the knowledge of the Roy Moore canon that this case is going to go absolutely nowhere. I'm not going to discuss the criminal case. If you want to keep insulting me, this will be over. You can run back to the judge like a little bitch. I'm doing what? Uh, The main person interrogating Stone uh, is Larry Klayman. He's a conservative lawyer. Who, who, who talked? I don't recall. You don't recall? No, I don't. You're lying, aren't you, Mr. Stone? No, you're lying, aren't you, You're a convicted liar, aren't you? Stop, stop, And, and you're stop. about to be ousted from the bar. Stop. Let's take a break. Good time for a break. Have fun molesting your own children, Larry. Stop. I read the court decision. And so now we come to Larry Clayman. Yes. Larry Clayman is suing Wonkat. <laughs> Larry Clayman is in sort of a quantum state of suing everyone and no one at all times, <laughs> based on how you're observing it. I think that's right. And he is also a lawyer and not a lawyer. <laughs> because right now, the DC bar issued a 183-page opinion censuring <laughs> him and seeking his disbarment, which is currently on appeal, which is the source of his lawsuit against Wonkett because they refer to him as a stalker in that article. And it's amazing because he includes the articles. Imagine if your stalker was Larry Clayman was the second (laughs) one. The first one was called, you know, when you make up mad at your wife for something she did in your dream. (laughs) Which is all about, like the first one is about the bar complaint, the hearing committee report and the bar complaint, where it says impaneling fake grand juries and sexual harassment and filing bullshit lawsuits are his favorite hobbies. And so they, he gets really mad about that. It's wonkette, right? So all of it is written in high ironic and hyperbole and jokes. And so they say that he tried to sue all yeah. black people and tried to subpoena Bill Clinton's penis. And he's suing Robert Mueller. And I got to say, I don't get the yes. subpoenaing Bill Clinton's penis thing. I tried to follow that link. And it just goes to something else. This is all old Judicial Watch stuff. So he's the yeah. founder, co-founder, something of Judicial Watch, which he eventually you know, also sued. And he filed just a jillion impossible to describe or understand or follow like frivolous suits in the Clinton era. Like just, a, just an absolute just carpet bombing of them. So that was just one of them was with a sensational uh, topic to it. But. I guess I can figure out sort of what it was. Maybe Paula Jones or Monica Lewinsky, in the course of their testimony or complaints, said that he had some distinguishing feature or something. And so maybe he sued for a photo in that context. What I will say is that the Wonkette link doesn't support it. Because instead, the Wonkette link goes to a story about how Larry Clayman lost custody of his kids, <laughs> um, which is itself, yeah. But, but Clayman absolutely, like I couldn't believe that was the rabbit hole, is that I ended up reading the Supreme Court of Ohio's opinion affirming the lower court's decision to take his kids away from him on the grounds of inappropriate and possibly sexual conduct with his kids. 
which sounds a lot, honestly, like bare-assed spanking. Like it says he acted in a grossly inappropriate manner with the children. This is the magistrate's opinion. His conduct may or may his conduct may not have been sexual in the sense that he intended to or did derive any sexual pleasure from it or that he intended his children would. That, however, does not mean that he did not engage in those acts or that his behavior was proper. Uh, and they also drew an adverse inference from the fact that Larry Clayman kept taking the fifth when asked about it. Yeah, Charles, you really went down a rabbit hole on, on this one. You just kept searching yeah. more and more Larry Clayman. I couldn't even keep up. Now I get to share my favorite Larry Clayman anecdote, which was that in 1998, there was like a big Newsweek article about him. And it was about the fact that he'd sued his mom. <laughs> For $50,000 that he spent for nurses for his grandma. And so Newsweek publishes this. And then um, Larry Clayman goes off about how, like, the Clintons leaked this information to Newsweek or whatever. And uh, (laughs) the article goes on to say, in fact, Newsweek did not hear of this lawsuit, which was concealed under the name of a collection agency that belongs to Clayman from the White House. It found out from Clayman's brother, who volunteered the information. (laughs) Incredible. Um, can I point out one cool trick that uh, that Larry Clayman pulled in this? He sued in state court in Florida. And ordinarily, this would be a diversity case because Wonkett is uh, a Montana corporation. And the individual who owns Wonkett, Rebecca Schoenkopf, lives in California. So Clayman's in Florida. He's suing someone from Montana, from California, and a corporation headquartered in Montana. In any event, none of it is Florida. So he sues for damages, quote, in excess of $15,000, which is probably the jurisdiction of small claims court in Florida, but less than $75,000, which is what the federal diversity jurisdiction statute requires to remove it, right? So that's his way of making sure that it stays in state court in Florida, which when I pointed this out on Twitter, someone showed me that in Texas, this would be considered abusive process, <laughs> like trying to duck diversity jurisdiction by pleading this specifically would either completely limit you to $75,000 in all cases, like you can't possibly recover more, or would be grounds for dismissal entirely for playing jurisdictional shenanigans. This is how this is how crazy um, reading this was. So when I read that statement, so he says in excess of fifteen thousand, but he puts the period and the two zeros after fifteen thousand. You know the, the the zero zero cents, and he doesn't do that after the <laughs> seventy five thousand. So when I read this really quickly late at night, I read the jurisdiction venue statement to say damages in excess of fifteen million. But less than seventy five thousand exclusive of interest costs and attorneys fees, and I was I was sitting here for like twenty minutes just trying to figure out like how that was possible, or what only claim it. Yeah, this goes to my yes. this goes to my right. quantum right. lawyer theory. Right. Million, but it's less than seventy five thousand when you take out my attorney's fees. Right. No, ordinarily, ordinarily you would assume a typo, but Larry Clayman, you're like maybe that is his demand. <laughs> That's I thought I thought it was. Yeah. And he and he tries to get nationwide jurisdiction. He says that Florida has long arm jurisdiction because on the front page of Wonkette they solicit donations. So they're doing business in Florida. 
That's like the whole of the jurisdictional statement is that Wonkat asks for donations from a Florida audience. He's not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> like all of this, like, and the big one was, it was just reporting on the bar complaint and the bar complaint is incredibly bad. He had this one client who he clearly fell in love with. She was a presenter on a conservative TV network of some kind that I guess has the agenda of broadcasting to an American Iranian audience to get people to agitate for regime change. And so the presenter herself is also a conservative and she had sexual harassment issues, which seem very real and sincere at work. She was passed over for promotions because some of her supervisors were harassing her. The facts of her harassment seem genuine in a really bad work situation. And she's talking about it at a dinner where she unfortunately happens to be seated near Larry Clayman, who's like, I'll represent you. And then goes like, balls to the wall, like filing motions she doesn't want and making claims she doesn't want to make and pursuing this hyper-aggressive litigation strategy all pro bono and then getting really pissed when she friend zones him. Like that's it. And he, he constantly is denying that he's pursuing her in a romantic way. But that just makes everything he does even creepier because he's constantly like asking her for reassurance that they're good friends. And he chased her into a bathroom and she jumped out of his car because he was like constantly phoning her and texting her and harassing her. And it's just like piled, like just an absolute car crash of all of these accusations that he gets sanctioned for by the DC bar, right? It's on appeal, right? Just the hearing committee wants him to be sanctioned and all fair report privilege. Everything that they talked about is just like right out of it. They even, because they knew it was Larry Clayman. They even footnoted the part where they call him a stalker to define what they mean by stalker, right? Like they literally say, Wonkette believes that <laughs> Sataki's fleeing Clayman's car and seeking refuge from his rage and unwanted advances shows that Clayman's behavior qualifies as stalking per the Department of Justice. And then it gives the, defin the, the definition of stalking. So they're clear about exactly what they mean. All of it's fair report and opinion. And then he just includes the articles. He's a wild man. Sounds like a cool guy. I have no idea what to do with him. But he's the first one who I want to <clears throat> just flat out lose. I don't really read Wonkette anymore, but I'm comfortable with her just kicking this. I don't want to let them fight here. I want them to just keep being mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, this shit's a ridiculous joke, so that's going to work out well. We good? We good. Episode one is in the books, finally. Thank you to Patrick Cosmos and Eric Michael for taking the time to do this with me. A special thanks to Jeb Lund for his heroic work producing and editing this podcast in spite of the audio shit pile I handed him. Subscribe to Jeb's Hallmark Movie Podcast with David Roth. Dave and Jeb aren't mean. 
a searing yet kind look inside a gentler world where every day is Christmas, except the episode I did where it was also Hanukkah. Thanks also to Mike Weeby and Riverboat Gamblers for letting me use Blue Ghosts as my intro. You can subscribe to Mike's podcast, Contrarian Court, where people defend the indefensible in front of Judge Wayne Gladstone. You can hear me defend the DMV. A second thanks to Patrick Cosmos for our bumper music from his album Tonal Rotors that was Fear of Heights, available on Bandcamp. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night.